0: We have finally arrived at the last module of the course. We have covered all six pillars of lifestyle medicine, and now we consider how to help both patients and clients and yourself to stay the course. By the end of this module, you will be able to recognize the need for self-care in yourself and others, and will review the aspects of self-care including routine physical activity, healthy eating, stress management, sleep hygiene, connection, and positive emotions. We'll review the literature showing how there is an impact of your own as a practitioner or provider's behaviors on the patient interaction and their progress. And we'll explore strategies for enhancing self-care for you as a future practitioner, perhaps even now as a student, or in the future as a parent, physician, grandparent, a worker of any type. Now, there are two general directions for staying the course, and I've kind of divided it up here, but you'll find that a lot of this applies no matter which side of the conversation you are on. Initially, I'd like to talk about how you might be helping your own patients and clients with their maintenance, but also in addressing your own lifestyle as a practitioner and how that will influence things as you go forward. So in terms of helping patients and clients, so we've talked all about these various lifestyle behaviors and how you might approach helping another individual to achieve their healthcare goals. But if we think about that trans-theoretical model, we know that occasionally things will revert back to previous stages of change and that maintenance is a particular area that some may be concerned with. And so it is an area we should be actively thinking about because, you know, life Happens, And it's critical that we accept that setbacks are normal and that they will occur, especially any time that stress increases or there are changes in routine. It can help to revisit long term vision and goals that there often is this high expectation of perfection. But we may realize that things have changed, that maybe we need to revisit those and alter what we had previously been working toward. Now we'll also spend some time, as I said, addressing your own lifestyle behaviors, how you might make sure that you are keeping with those, not only to apply what you've learned in this class, but as a future practitioner, because you will find that self-care is especially important as a healthcare practitioner because of something called burnout, which is relatively common in the healthcare field. So I do want to address lifestyle behaviors in the context of keeping you healthy, not only as an individual, but a future practitioner who can not only influence others, but through your own example, be a role model for people. So let's start with how you can help others who have made progress and want to maintain it. So this would be those patients or clients we've been talking about influencing and working with in your future practice. And that is because maintenance is something to consider. It is a common fear among individuals that they may lose progress. And you can see this in things like yo-yo dieting, that perhaps the behavior change they thought they had made just isn't sustainable, or it reverts, often because of stress or changes in routine. So I would recommend revisiting that stress management content that we talked about. Actually went over multiple modules in this class because managing stress is going to be, be a particularly important thing that can help people manage setbacks. So there is this perception that we don't have time as stress increases, Priorities shift and then a setback occurs. And sometimes we're really hard on ourselves and we struggle to get back out of this rut that has been created by what we perceive as a failure. Whereas if we can have self-compassion, if we can increase positive self-talk and foster resilience among ourselves and those patients and clients that we work with, obviously using positive psychology, which we've talked a lot about lately, These critical things that we have done to assume that we are failures can be flipped around. We can be resilient, recognize that setbacks happen, include positive self-talk and self-compassion so that we can continue forward rather than allowing the setback to become a derailment in our positive health behavior change. Now you might be thinking, this all sounds a bit floofy. That's just a technical term, right? But you're thinking, what? Self-compassion? Positive self-talk? This sounds like a lot of psychology. Well, in some ways it is. But it has been researched, for example, Kristen Neff is a researcher who has evaluated and and researched self-compassion as a way to help us embrace ourselves as we are, flaws and all, so that we can move forward in a positive way. She's actually done empirical research on self-compassion. And she has found that there are three main elements to this. Self-kindness, we are so hard on ourselves sometimes, in fact, more critical than we would be if it was a friend or family member in that same situation. We tend to be so tough on ourselves that that mentality that we have then created in our mind then influences the negative health behaviors that we turn to instead of just saying, you know, it was a setback, I can make a different choice and move forward. So also recognizing that we're imperfect, struggle is expected, setbacks are expected, that there's a common humanity. We're all human and it's okay. No one is perfect. Just accepting that and then treating ourselves the way that we would a good friend can help people accept those things that have happened and just try to move on. But a component of this is something we've been talking about quite a bit. And that's this idea of mindfulness. You can be present and aware that things happen. We may be struggling with something in the moment, but sometimes we are our own worst critic. And again, a friend or family member would tell us to look at it differently. And there's actually some really good information out there, including a TED talk, if you're interested in more about this, because sometimes the biggest part of maintaining Or moving forward in positive health behavior change has to do with the way we think our mentality our mindset we talked about a growth mindset in previous modules and that can be really important to taking this maintenance concept and really being able to move forward being kind to ourselves that's all important but if we go back to that practical part of staying the course we see that it's important to help people realize that you have a choice And in fact, maintenance and staying the course can have to do with priorities and scheduling. So you may be able to help a patient or client through those questions. You know, if they have a tendency to be really hard on themselves, you might be able to use affirmations and reflections and then open-ended questions that help them reevaluate their priorities and what opportunities certain situations present and whether they want to weigh the pros and cons of making a different decision. In fact, it may even mean getting back to basics, considering cutting back to essential things, being simplistic in a way, talking very simplistically about eating patterns, about activity. And that can be hard, especially if we had made progress in the past, we think we're a failure if we go back to doing something that was way less than we used to, whereas we can... Just go back to saying, hey, I'm going to make it simple. Even 10 minutes of a walk today is better than nothing because we have a tendency to say, man, I used to walk or run for half an hour and I just don't have time for that anymore. So we go back to doing nothing as opposed to just saying it's okay to go back to doing 10 minutes because that's better than nothing. And the reason that I recommend this idea of scheduling, and that is talked about in our textbook, is that sometimes we prioritize other things, particularly when things get stressful and busy. We might prioritize meetings or tasks that are higher on the to-do list, but we could equally prioritize sleep and exercise and nutrition, but that means accepting that setbacks will occur and making it be okay and normal and expected. That cutting back to a lesser amount might be more acceptable than doing nothing at all. And that's a hard thing for us to get over, which is why that idea of self-compassion can be important. How would you look at it if you were a friend or a family member talking to yourself, as opposed to the way that we can be so critical of ourselves? So, as I mentioned, long-term vision and goals may need periodically revisiting or revising. And again, It's possible that things have shifted, priorities have shifted, and again, that's okay. It's this idea of accepting that things change, life happens, and sort of being forgiving and, and recommending that we take this forgiving mindset going forward with not only patients or clients, but again, with ourselves. So if we think about it with ourselves, for you personally, and as a practitioner, what would this look like? How can you apply what you've learned in this class for yourself personally and then as a future practitioner? Well, there are four recommendations that the text talks about here. First of all, always practice what you preach. And this is largely part of self-care. And you've seen that I've tried to encourage that as we've gone along in learning about these. I've asked you to experiment with your sleep patterns. I've asked you to experiment with mindfulness, meditation, and relaxation. I've asked you to experiment with gratitude exercises and other positive psychology approaches. So you can see here that for yourself as an individual, it is important for you to practice what you preach because then you have better empathy and understanding and you can serve as a role model. Patients and clients can realize, yeah, you've tried these things too, and so you understand they are difficult. It can be hard when things are stressful and you are very busy and life happens. It is also super important to always be learning. We'll talk a little bit about ways that you can keep this in mind, and it may be something that is already structured into your development as a practitioner with continuing education. But to always be value-oriented, that you live a life consistent with your values, which means knowing what they are. And then, this all ideally hopefully allows you to be a difference maker. Certain qualities make it more likely that you can make a difference in somebody's life. Now, all of these may seem obvious, right? Shouldn't healthcare providers do what they say because they know what's recommended? Well, again, that's not always the case. Sometimes healthcare providers forget that they're people and patients too, and they're affected by life also. In fact, practitioners are included in all these statistics we've talked about as the overall reasons for causes of death. Healthcare providers are so driven, they may be juggling a lot of very demanding expectations, both expectations they set on themselves, but also expectations in their field, in their, by their employer, in their type of practice. And so it's easy to let lifestyle slip as you begin to juggle all of these demands. And so that's why I've asked you to consider practicing self-care for yourself, not only for your own well-being, but as a practitioner and example to those who you want to help them improve health behaviors. Now, this concept of self-care is important for both you as a practitioner and then those you are working with. It is what people do for themselves to establish and maintain health in addition to preventing and dealing with illness. It is a very broad concept, and in fact there are multiple definitions of this, but in general it encompasses things like hygiene, both general and personal hygiene, nutrition, type, quality, and quantity of food eaten, lifestyle like sports and exercise, leisure activity, and then things like not smoking, not drinking too much. Environmental factors, living conditions, social habits, work, socioeconomic factors, income level, education level, cultural beliefs, and then self-medication. And that might be with prescription medication following what has been prescribed to you by a healthcare provider, but also how we self-medicate with over-the-counter medication, which requires a certain amount of health literacy. And there might even be herbals and other supplements and products that people use. Now, the World Health Organization has a definition of self-care from 2013 that is defined as the ability of individuals, families, and communities to promote health, prevent disease, and maintain health. In addition to coping with illness and disability, and here's the key, with or without the support of a healthcare provider, because there are certain things we tend to do and we don't contact a healthcare provider first. But this may still be part of a conversation for you as a practitioner with a patient in the future. It requires some underlying components that we sometimes take for granted. For example, health literacy, physical activity, and eating, those are all things that we have talked about that seem obvious, but health literacy means that people understand what is necessary to obtain process and then apply basic health information. Things like getting health screening, getting vaccinations, having blood work done, and then understanding what it all means. Because while we may have talked about some of the basics like physical activity and healthy eating, those Understanding and putting that into practice requires a certain level of understanding and ability to get that information and apply it in someone's own life. So while you may talk to someone about maintaining their body weight, they need to have an understanding of the influence of that on things like cholesterol, blood pressure. Because if you're telling them, yeah, physical activity and, you know, not getting too much sodium in your diet, that can help, you know, reduce blood pressure. Well, do they even know what blood pressure is and what it can lead to? So some of these things, again, require a little bit more than just talking to them about physical activity and healthy eating. It also includes risk avoidance. So being able to talk about quitting tobacco, limiting alcohol use, and then getting vaccinations, which has been an an important topic recently with the pandemic, practicing safe sex, brushing your teeth every day, using sunscreens, things, again, that we might take for granted and we may not always talk about in a uh, healthcare interaction in a doctor's office or other setting. Washing hands, washing food, and responsible use of things that may go beyond an individual health appointment, um, being aware of dangers and accidents and using um your seat belt, things like that, that again, we might take for granted. Now, self-care can also include things that deal with emotional and mental health. It can be helpful for you to jot down what's important to you that you enjoy so that you can remind yourself in times of stress and life change and different routines that you might then be able to remind yourself to go back to. For example. What do you do in your spiritual life? Is there something that fulfills you in either a general spiritual practice that might include meditation? Are there specific religious services that you would like to go to that help you feel fulfilled? Regardless of what faith area or faith basis that relies or that is grounded in, any spiritual life might be fulfilling to you. And so knowing what that is and how it helps improve your life. Creative pursuits. Do you enjoy painting, drawing, photography, fiber arts, knitting, sewing? Do you enjoy um, creating things with your hands, woodworking, um, crafting in general? Maybe getting to bed before 10 is really important to you. Maybe your social aspect of life needs to be improved or sought out during times of stress. Seeking balance. Is exercise super important to you? Eating healthy, is that super important to maintain when life gets busy? Maybe getting away from the stressors of life. Do you enjoy reading? You know, find some fiction that helps you get away, that you find entertaining. Um, Keeping up with the news, is that important to you? Or on the other hand, when news is particularly stressful, avoiding it perhaps when necessary. Or seeking things that help you feel like you're moving forward, like seeking learning, and you'll see that connect here in a moment. You may even consider a formal questionnaire that asks about self-care areas. For example, there was one created in 1996 by Norton that has been used quite a bit, and you'll see a link to that in our module that asks you to consider certain questions and then look for patterns in your responses. Are you more active in certain areas of self-care but you ignore others? It just creates awareness. So again, you could use this for yourself and it's actually kind of nice if you consider using it with patients or clients because it actually creates A quantitative number so you get a score by how you answer these various self-care items and so over time as people continually revisit this type of questionnaire they might be able to see where certain areas of their self-care have decreased or where areas they've improved they might want to take a look at again to see if there are other things they'd like to do to balance out one area or another. Now, there are also resources that have been specifically tailored to healthcare workers. In fact, again, you'll see a link in our module to the Healthcare Toolbox website because, as I've mentioned, it can be particularly stressful in the field of healthcare to maintain your self- care as things get stressful in your professional lives. So practitioners should be aware of their own emotional reactions and distress, particularly if you're confronted with traumatic experiences of patients or clients, and to know if there's particular traumatic material that may trigger you. For example, certain types of injuries, um, certain types of mental, emotional anguish, for example. And it can even be helpful to connect with others about your reactions. So trusted colleagues, networks of other professionals who you can rely on to talk through some situations you may be confronted with and working with certain patients or clients. And here it's particularly important to maintain a balance between your professional and personal life, this work life balance, which means really being deliberate about self care, all these things that we have talked about. And you may find that in addition to keeping up with self care, that evidence recommends developing and um, maintaining a particular focus as a lifelong learner and this may be learning more about self-care areas or also keeping up with rapidly developing areas in your own professional discipline For example, even in a discipline like lifestyle medicine, where it is rapidly changing and developing because it is relatively new. Now, likely, some requirement for learning is going to be part of your professional discipline as continuing education. In other words, to fulfill or renew your licensure or certifications, you may need to document a certain amount of continuing education each couple years as you go through your professional career. So learning enhances your competence and credibility, and it requires dedication. So a few tips for effective learning that this textbook discusses is to be engaged and persistent. And it requires dedication, but it can be helpful to find the areas in your own profession and in your own discipline that you are particularly passionate about, and then you can seek that out and become a voracious reader in those areas? Are there particular authors that talk about areas that you're passionate about, that you want to expand on in your own professional practice? That may mean challenging yourself to find those particular CE opportunities that help you to expand in that area. And which means, again, planning your learning. Are there conferences that you can seek out and make sure to attend lectures in that discipline, in that area that you want to develop personally? And then be open to new ideas. You may be expanding your own areas of, of expertise and be prepared to learn and become a critical thinker and problem solver in that area. You may be able to brainstorm with colleagues and other professionals, network. And even part of learning, just like you've been doing here in the university, using techniques that help you to learn, like mnemonic devices that help you remember certain things that you want to embed in your mind as something to refer back to. And even mapping your task flow. This can be helpful on a day-to-day basis. Think about how you approach your semester. Mapping the tasks that you need to complete for the rest of the semester. I'm sure right now, as we're in the end of the semester, you're realizing all these things that you need to complete in the next week or two. And so you likely are learning how to manage those tasks. And that time management can again be brought out into the rest of your life. Managing task flow is something that you can apply in your professional life as well. And all of this requires self-motivation. In addition to keeping up with learning, it is worth recognizing the influence of your personal values on your practice and how you live your life. But this requires you to think about and acknowledge what your values are. And this is something, again, we can take for granted in both personal life and even in professional practice. Have you ever sat down and thought about what your values are? And then are you living them? Are you living a life both professionally and personally consistent with your values? Because in life, people who live both their personal life and their work lives according to their values, they tend to leave a more meaningful and fulfilled life. Think back to all that we talked about with positive psychology having purpose and meaning in your life and living by that. We talked about Viktor Frankl and even people in concentration camps in World War II who had meaning and purpose were more likely to live. So it makes sense that if you can grasp your values and purpose and meaning in your life, apply it to your work life in addition to personal life, that will help you create priorities and live by them. It creates a filter influencing how you think act and react to the world and therefore will influence how you spend your time so that you are focusing your time on your lifestyle and improving your quality of life if that is indeed important to you and important for you to influence your patients and clients. It will help you stick to a clear and consistent course of action and ultimately influence how you make decisions, again personally and professionally. Now. If you are working to practice what you preach, continually be learning and live a personal and professional life consistent with your values, you will likely find that you are able to make a difference in people's lives. It is likely the reason that you went into a healthcare field in the first place, right? You wanted to make a difference. In people's lives. So what are some of the attributes that characterize people who make a difference? Well, they're able to ask the right questions. So why do you think that I concentrated so much on you learning some valuable conversational skills like using ORs, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries? Having that type of conversational skill in a healthcare field is going to allow you to bring out motivation in individuals and help them move forward making progress. You can have an ability to understand the situation from the patient's point of view. Remember that concept of empathy and how important that is in the healthcare field? It also will help you to think outside the box. You can consider other professionals, make referrals, network with other people who might be better able to handle a particular Issue, situation, or area that arises when talking to a patient or client. And you can look for better ways to do things, not just accepting the status quo. And you can take ownership of your actions and help patients and clients to do the same. So, this means having concern for the welfare of patients and clients and also an ethical, again, or value based stance that you take in both your professional and personal lives. So, you're like, okay. Why is she telling me all this? Well, while you want to be a difference maker in people's lives, this can take a toll. Burnout is something, unfortunately, that is incredibly common in the healthcare field. So I'm going to connect all this back to the very first thing that I talked about here, and that was self-care. Because while self-care in a patient or client can be a critical part of helping them maintain their progress with health behaviors, it is also a critical part of preventing burnout in your own life as a healthcare practitioner. Burnout is a particular type of work-related stress that is defined as a state of physical or emotional exhaustion that involves a sense of reduced accomplishment and a loss of personal identity. There is a sense of emotional exhaustion. You get a depersonalization both with your um, private life and then with your professional life. And you feel as though there is a low level of personal accomplishment in multiple areas of your life. So how do we address this? Well first we need to know how to identify it for you personally in your future professional life. And to consider the cause and then what you can do about it. So how do you identify job burnout? Well It starts with identifying that you have a low level of energy and productivity. You feel like you maybe don't want to go to work anymore. You may dread going to work in the morning. You have a low level of motivation. You may find when you are at work, you have an exaggerated emotional response. You're irritable, cynical, angry. You tend to snap at colleagues or even at patients or clients. You may have sleeping difficulties you may notice that your own health behaviors are suffering. Use of food, drugs or alcohol to cope, social withdrawal, maybe avoiding interactions or just noticing changes in the dynamics of those interactions with relationships and a general dissatisfaction with work or home life. So what causes job burnout? One of the the components could be a perceived lack of control. You would feel as though you don't have influence over decisions or the trajectory of your day at work. You may perceive a lack of fairness, inequality at work, in either workload or pay. You may notice dysfunctional dynamics among co-workers or even within the hierarchy of your professional life. Maybe there are unclear expectations. What does your job entail? Or are those expectations an extreme? Are, is there a greater expectation than an individual could conceivably really do in the given time? Or is it the other extreme? Maybe it's not work overload. What if your work is monotonous? Maybe you're not being challenged. Maybe that is something that could be addressed. It's a perhaps poor fit for your skills and interests. Maybe it doesn't match with your values or goals in your professional life or personal life. Perhaps the work is so demanding that you're not able to maintain balance with your personal life. Maybe those demands are taking up time that you normally would have been able to dedicate to family, relationships, and self-care. Maybe there are insufficient rewards. Maybe the pay, again, is not equitable. Maybe you're not receiving recognition for the work that you do. But here's a really big one that, again, is a little more specific to healthcare workers, and that is compassion fatigue or vicarious trauma, secondary trauma. So, part of the reason you went into or are considering going into a healthcare field is you want to make a difference. You have compassion, you are a caring individual, and you want to help others. However, over time, it may feel as though you are giving and giving and giving and that drains you. It is also possible that due to the population or setting that you are working with, you are being confronted regularly with trauma, emotional trauma, physical trauma, mental trauma of those patients or clients that you are working with. So let's talk about how self-care might help you with this. It's really important to realize that, again, healthcare professionals are just like other individuals in their capacity to, to adjust to things. Now, this data is a little bit old, but in a survey of healthcare professionals at four hospitals, it was found that 38% of healthcare professionals were reported to have diagnostic levels of psychological distress, including depression, anxiety and impaired function. In fact that rate was comparable to their own patients. So again while this information is a little bit old it still tells us that the stress is real and so we need to be just as aware of our own self-care as we do recommending it to patients and clients. In fact these numbers are likely to be worse today. Especially when you consider the increased stressors related to the pandemic and providing care in that kind of stressful situation. So, even before the pandemic, a healthcare provider's toolbox was created, and there is a link to this in the module that has some recommendations for preventing secondary trauma and compassion fatigue. In daily life, there are some things, and these should sound familiar to you, that healthcare practitioners can try to encompass so that they are maintaining their own health behaviors. In other words, eating sensibly and regularly. When we're under stress, we might skip meals. So trying to be mindful of not allowing that, being regular about healthy eating. Getting adequate sleep each night. And again, this even with the best intentions could still be affected by stress that wakes us up and doesn't allow us to fall back asleep easily. But again, getting back to what can we do about that which we've learned about in a previous module. Getting regular exercise. Exercise is important for relieving stress. But being aware of stress level and taking precautions against exceeding your own limits and acknowledging your reactions. It is normal to experience reactions to stressful circumstances and allowing yourself to find ways to cope with those emotions. Now, when that influences work, It can be helpful to try to diversify tasks. Ask your supervisor about caseload. Take breaks during the day. Taking vacation days. Using relaxation techniques. Even trying to incorporate those into your day can be really important. Even just a minute of mindfulness or breathing techniques might be helpful. Speak out, talk to individuals, colleagues, about how work is affecting you. Seek out and establish a professional support group. Recognizing your personal limitations and setting limits with not only patients and clients, but with colleagues, especially if there is delegation that is perhaps putting a lot more pressure on you and your workload. Now what about outside of work? This can be part of self-care. Seeking time with family and friends. Remember that social connection module we talked about? We take it for granted, but it is super important to stay connected with others, both friends and family, but also community events, religious groups, things that support you. Engaging in pleasurable activities unrelated to work, things that allow for creative expression. Again, I talked about this before. Do you enjoy painting? Do you enjoy writing? art, sports, things that are entertaining to you that get your mind off of work. Being mindful of your own thoughts, especially if you begin to have feelings and thoughts that you know might be particularly related to work. And engaging in rejuvenating activities to help balance meditation, prayer, relaxation, and seeking therapy. So not being afraid to ask for help. You know, there's often a stigma with getting help from mental health professionals. However, this can be a really big part of helping you manage your own stressors and also recognizing then when you can refer patients and clients to those same kinds of other professionals when they may need therapy or at least benefit from it. So as we talk about what we can do to prevent this secondary traumatic stress it is also important to recognize when red flags are coming up with physical emotional or mental stress so as we look at those stressors what about the physical reactions fatigue if you are noticing fatigue that can be a very important clue that there is something going on Sleep disturbances, changes in appetite, headaches, upset stomach and other muscle tension, and even sexual dysfunction. What about red flags in emotional reactions? Feeling overwhelmed, emotionally spent, helpless, inadequate, feeling vulnerable, mood swings and irritability, maybe crying more easily or often. Or here's a big one indicating that you may need to consider reaching out to a mental health professional. Suicidal or violent thoughts or urges. What about how your behavior may change? Red flags include you becoming more isolated from your social relationships, withdrawing from time with individuals, perhaps restlessness, changes in alcohol or drug consumption. Changes in relationships with others, both personally and professionally. Again, are you beginning to be irritable with interactions with those at work? You may notice just things changing with your cognitive functioning. Maybe there's a disbelief or sense of numbing. You replay events over and over, that ruminating. Maybe you're just not able to concentrate or having issues with remembering things at work or in your personal life. Difficulty making decisions, critical thinking and problem-solving skills being decreased, or perhaps things that are coming up with sleep-related, distressing dreams, or fantasies about getting away, changing, having something be different. Now, what if you begin to notice these symptoms in yourself or even in a colleague? Here's where we talk about what you do, can do about it. This gets back to what we just talked about with self-care social connection, having and seeking a greater work-life balance, all of these things that we have talked about. This cycle we talked about in a previous module that is a coaching cycle of understanding. Start with being empathetic, not only with yourself, but with a colleague, patient, or client. Finding the motivation to change. Trying to seek out and build confidence setting a goal so that you can do something about it, and then accountability with yourself or with someone else. This is where keeping up with that social connection may actually allow you, as a healthcare professional, move forward. Now, it's important to realize for yourself and patients and clients that whatever you choose as self-care is highly personal. And then, of course, that will be for patients or clients, which is why being open to the fact that it, what worked for you may not work for a patient or client or other individual. Not everyone has the same opportunities, responsibilities, or even hardships that they're trying to overcome. Everyone's life and ability to make decisions is not equal. So the more you can be non-judgmental and open to the possibilities, the better it can be for helping yourself and people around you. Because no one is perfect. Even healthcare providers who know what they're supposed to be doing and are actively promoting these health behaviors. In fact, what's really interesting is if you begin to look at research of healthcare providers, not only in what they do personally in their lives for healthcare behaviors, but what they recommend, the evidence gets really interesting. If we look at how healthcare professionals are doing, the proportionate mortality found among healthcare providers shows us that Heart disease and accidents are actually more common in MDs, and unfortunately, suicide is more common in doctors. So what does this tell us? There's a lot of stress related to this, and just knowing what to do doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily be able to do it. And so we're in the same situation that we are talking about with patients and clients and handling life and trying to make behavior changes. So there is value for you as a provider and for your patients if you work toward your own health behaviors and self-care. In fact, evidence shows that among physicians who are working to improve their personal poor health habits, they are more likely to counsel patients. Significantly more likely to counsel patients in working with changing and improving personal health habits. So what does this tell you? Just you being honest and trying to influence your own health behaviors means you're not only being a role model and practicing what you preach, but you're going to have a positive influence on others. If we look a little bit more closely at at physician counseling, physicians who exercise are more likely to counsel on exercise. And we're also more likely to understand the barriers. So barriers to counseling on exercise unfortunately is inadequate time in those appointments. Or perhaps a lack of knowledge and experience on exercise counseling. So what does this again tell you? That if you can make an effort at your own exercise, for example, or even nutrition, smoking, and alcohol behaviors, you are more likely to counsel on them. But you may want to seek out knowledge and experience in doing this. This is another reason why I've asked you as part of this class to practice these kinds of conversations because the more practice and experience you have with asking questions about health behaviors in an open-ended way, you will realize that it becomes easier to address these in conversation, in future appointments with patients and clients. So what about the issue where patients may perceive that you're really good at this, you're really good at health behaviors, and that you can't understand their struggles? It's actually been studied before. There have been studies about whether healthcare practitioners disclosing their own struggles or their own efforts at changing health behaviors, how that influences the perception of patients and clients. So one of the questions that was asked in research was, can physicians who disclose their own personal health behaviors improve their credibility and ability to motivate? There's an interesting study where even without having a conversation face-to-face with a patient or client, People were asked to watch videos of physicians counseling patients, and it was really short. It included only about a half minute of self-disclosure of the doctor saying, you know, this is what I have done, or this is the struggle that I've had with dietary approaches or exercise practices, and even things as simple as referencing things like their bike helmet on their desk or an apple on their desk, you know, that created a visual that this healthcare practitioner, was doing something for their own health benefit. What's interesting was the viewers of these videos where the physician disclosed something about dietary exercise practices, those physicians doing that were determined by the participants to be more believable and motivating when they were looked at as giving information about exercise and diet. So again, what can you learn from this? You're human. As a future healthcare professional, you are also going to struggle with keeping up with health behaviors. It is okay. And it is part of understanding your own patients and clients that self-care is important for you as a future practitioner and as an individual. And acknowledging that and being able to talk about that can even help your patients and clients. Now, the truth is, Much of what we do with self-care is challenging because of time. Again, as a practitioner, as a patient or client. But what can be helpful to understand is that one of the biggest excuses to adopting or changing health behaviors is I just don't have time. But it is also true that people won't find the time. People must make the time. And that includes you as an individual, you as a healthcare practitioner, and you as somebody talking to patients or clients who are trying to improve their health behaviors. What it has to do with is making time by prioritizing daily choices, evaluating your opportunity and what the costs of that opportunity are. There may be times where there is very little opportunity and if the opportunity presents itself, it is going to have a cost. But in that moment, making a mindful decision about that might be okay. At other points, you may evaluate the costs and benefits and say, boy, I have an opportunity. It would be more beneficial to go for a walk right now than to do this other thing. Now, there's also the question of getting extra years. This idea of time could be expanded even further. That by making the time, prioritizing daily health choices, you may not only extend your life and get extra time, but that time will be better throughout because of an improvement in quality of life, because of an improvement in daily functioning as a result of adopting and regularly practicing these positive health behaviors. So, you know, if we only have a finite amount of time, let's make it at least enjoyable. Because if you don't prioritize and choose how you're going to spend your time you'll notice you're never going to reach that well I'll do that when I have time you'll never reach that point someone will choose to fill that time or life itself will fill that time and you realize 10 years later that oh yeah I was gonna start exercising and oh I was gonna change my diet and now the health ramifications of not making those changes are beginning to set in now while much of what you've learned so far in this class has had some sort of ground floor guideline or recommendation to meet. In other words, 150 minutes of physical activity a week, 78 hours of sleep, one drink or or less a day if you're a woman, two drinks or less a day if you're a man. So there's all these guidelines. It's also beneficial to consider for some that it may be a conversation to go beyond that baseline. Foundation, the baseline guideline or recommendation. So let's say you are in practice with athletes, and they, for example, already do pretty well because they have to. If they're an elite athlete, they do pretty well with their sleep, their dietary practices, their exercise. For them, you may have to think beyond health to wellness and well being they may need to achieve something more. So it's helpful to realize that for some things, you may be going beyond the minimum to reach health optimization. So for the general public, perhaps reaching a baseline of 150 minutes of physical activity is a challenge and is a major part of your discussion. For others, 150 minutes may be a reduction in what they currently do. For some, they may be getting 100 to 300 minutes of moderate physical activity a week. Or they may be getting 150 minutes of vigorous physical activity a week. They are beyond the foundation baseline guidelines. And for them, it may be about maximizing their human potential. And this is where you can really pull in things from positive psychology and flourishing. Because for them, it is about promoting their well-being, functioning, and quality of life because they may already be beyond what those base guidelines and foundations are, that minimums that we've talked about. And this is why it's important to be open and not judgmental approaching everything with it being unique to each person. It is worth exploring with each person an illness and wellness continuum. Because for some individuals, it may be about moving away from disease to a neutral position. For these individuals, they may just be trying to reduce risk of disease, improve their daily functioning. Whereas for others, they may be able to move beyond that to achieving wellness. Or for, let's say, elite athletes or people who are, you know, what you might describe colloquially as a health nut, those people may be moving beyond wellness to optimizing their health. And so this is a really important concept. While we have based most of things so far on at least improving your disease status, reducing risk, but it is also something we could go beyond. But that may even require assessing where they are. And this is why I wanna talk about two things that are found in the appendices at the back of our textbook. This is a lifestyle medicine assessment and a weekly health prescription. So for some individuals they may be just starting, but for those who are really interested in pursuing achieving wellness and health optimization it may be beneficial to periodically reassess things. So a lifestyle medicine assessment can be a really important part of helping them determine where to go next. So it can be useful for tracking and reflecting somebody with somebody you're just starting with. You want to see where they are in the various lifestyle areas and then determine where to go first. So this can be an initial assessment and then retaking that assessment at three months, one year, depending on how often you might meet with a patient or client. Now, there are a couple options here. In Appendix B of our textbook, there is a lifestyle medicine assessment that is based on a target concept. And there's a a photo here um, from the back of our textbook that kind of shows you what that is. There are 21 items in five domains, and those domains um, combine stress and sleep into one domain called recovery. But social connection, movement, substance use, nutrition, and then the combined stress and sleep of recovery. Connectedness, interestingly, is sort of a foundation area. And then substance use, movement, nutrition, and recovery are all uh, surrounding that central area of connectedness. And what's interesting here is there are 10 points in that domain, and of those 21 items or questions, you get points for your responses in each of those areas. And they are distributed, the points in those areas, relative to how that item impacts health. Now, what's also great about this particular assessment is each item is related to one or more study demonstrating that item's ability to improve quality of life, morbidity, and mortality. So this might be one that you want to experiment with a little bit, either in your own life or if you end up going into lifestyle medicine as part of your um, area of expertise in future practice. This could be something worth implementing in your future practice with patients and clients. However, I will note that it is not yet validated among the adult population. So if you would prefer to go with something that is being actively studied, you might look At the lifestyle medicine assessment that has been um, available through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine that is currently under investigation by Loma Linda University and being validated in various populations. So that might be one there's a long and a short form available through the ACLM that can be used again in practice and then um, reflected back into the information that is being studied through the University. Now Let's say you're doing these assessments with individuals. We've talked about each module, a potential health prescription. We often framed it in the frequency, intensity, time, and type, or FIT mnemonic that we've used in exercise science. But what if we want to take a larger global approach to this? And this might be something you want to consider for your own self-care. Creating a weekly health prescription. This is something that you may want to consider your own medication for every day or every week. And reflect back on those various areas of lifestyle pillars we've talked about in this class. For example, sleep. How are you doing with that? Is that something that you can alter or um, improve? Are you getting the correct or recommended, I shouldn't say correct, the recommended amount of physical activity? Are there days that you can fit in, a walk or a run? Can you do some relaxation activities? Can you combine some of these, like walking with individuals, meeting with family and friends? Would you want to make sure that your other social connectedness can be fulfilled on the weekend, getting together with individuals in your neighborhood or family and friends? How are you doing with nutrition? How are you managing your stress in other ways? So again, looking through all of these, you may be able to realize that revisiting this kind of weekly or daily health prescription helps you to keep with your self-care. It may help you reassess times in which you need to make changes to better manage your own stress and perhaps make sure you are not getting to a point that you are having burnout in your job, and ideally part of this class, in addition to helping you understand what you can do for your own health, is helping prepare you as future practitioners to spread the word and make lifestyle medicine an approach that helps us all get to a better place where we are addressing lifestyle behavior as the primary treatment and prevention for chronic disease. So I hope that in the end here you've gained information that you can put into practice in your personal life and in your professional life and that it might be something you choose to incorporate as you move forward in your own lives.